Good morning. <laughs> Good to see all of you. And if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us. My name is John. If we've not met before, I get to serve as a pastor here, and it's one of the most fun things I do all week. In fact, that's actually what I do all week is that. So I enjoy that a lot. Here I am. Um, but it is an exciting day. I mean, as John Michael kind of alluded to, a lot of things happening in the life of our church. And um, I get to, even on a Sunday like this, um, again, whether you're joining us online for the very first time or you're joining us in the room for the very first time, uh, you may not know a lot of names. And there's probably actually some names in our world that you and I know really well, certain celebrities, political figures, uh, biblical characters. But there's some names in history that are easily overlooked. One of those names that I just stumbled across uh, is the name Hiru Onoda. Uh, an early picture of him, uh, Hiru went into the Japanese military right at the beginning of World War II to serve. Um, they're, they're not, not for us, okay, on the other side of the fence. And uh, anyway, one of the stories that I came across in history was Hiru was sent to this really, really remote village in the Philippines called Labong. Now, he's in Labong, Philippines. Really, he was sent with just a handful of other guys. So Hiru and a couple of his buddies get sent over. Their commanding officer says, basically, we need you to just hold down this little island. We, don't, we want to make sure no invasions happen. We want to make sure that we keep the Philippines suppressed. We want to make sure that Japan is, is winning in this corner of the world. And so we need you to hold this down and just keep things under wraps. Can you do that, Hiru? Being a good soldier, being a young guy, says, yes, yes, sir, I will do that. He says, but there's one caveat. We don't know exactly when we're going to come back for you, Hiru. Okay, like <laughs> you and your little band of soldiers, we believe in you. You can do this. And the conversation goes something like, at least according to journalists, that, that it began with, we'll, we'll come back in a few months. So just fight. You can make it happen. Control what's happening here for a few months. And they said, but it also could be like a year. So Hyrule, can you hold it down here for a year? And Hyrule's like, yes. He said, okay, it also could be, we're not totally sure, maybe three, four, five years. Can you hold it down for three, four, five years? And Hyrule says, yes, I will do it. Like salutes, and they fly away, and Hyrule and his band of merry men are there basically to hold down the fort until the war's over. And uh, what happens is year after year goes by, three years happens, four years happens, they hit the five-year mark. If you and I are Hyru and his band of men, you're probably like, all right, well, it should be any day now, right? Well, six years happens. Six years becomes 10 years. 10 years becomes 15 years. They're fighting on this little island. 20 years goes by. At 20 years, I'd be starting to get nervous. I'd be like, how do we kind of Swiss Family Robinson this and uh, figure out a way to get back to where we're from? I don't know how, to, how far is it Japan. Like, let's figure that out. Well, 20 years goes by. 25 years go by. 30 years go by. And ends up, everyone else has died on this island as a part of this band, except Hyru. And Hyru is still fighting off the Filipinos, still trying to figure it out, living off the land. Like, this guy is a legit warrior. He's just making it happen all by himself 30 years later. One of the really interesting parts of Hyru's story, and even there's similar stories to this throughout the, the, the course of World War II, is that Hyru would frequently stumble across pamphlets or newspaper clippings that would be found in the local villages in which he was fighting these Filipinos by himself that said things like, the war's over, or like, uh, Japan lost, the war's over, like all of these different things. Now, Hyru, being incredibly loyal, being incredibly bought into to the mission, said, doesn't matter. I don't believe that. That's propaganda. There's no way it's actually over. They would surely come back for me, right, if it was over and so Hyru just keeps on fighting. And essentially, if you were 
in Hyru's position, like I thought about myself being in that position, there would be decades of really, really bad news. Like, we talk about fake news today. I mean, he's like, that newspaper thing, that's fake news, that's not real. The war's still going. I'm still fighting, still using his gun from the 40s. Uh, fast forward to where it's like 1970s, and, and he's still fighting. He's still wearing his military dress. He's still uh, ironing things. He's still eating off the land, making it happen. For years and years and years, uh, Hyru had no good news, like had no idea what was going on in the rest of the world. He just kept fighting. He kept going. Now, uh, you and I are in a very similar cultural context, so I'm going to make the assumption that the majority of time that you and I receive news, it's not good, right? Uh, you've probably been like, are you serious? How, how's another wildfire even possible? Uh, my brother-in-law's family lives in San Jose, and they're kind of figuring this out. Like, they're right in the middle of, of this wildfire thing and trying to figure out what does life look like, how long is it going to be? Some of you have family on the West Coast, so you're like, this is just a really interesting, I'm in Michigan where nothing serious ever happens in the weather, except snow, which is pretty serious. But like never really any major catastrophes have happened, at least since I've lived here. And so I think about stuff like that, that's, that's some serious bad news. Well, you maybe on the other side, uh, during this season that we've walked through as a country, maybe there was some bad news you got at your job. Not what you were expecting, not what you're wanting, and now you're still trying to figure out what are my next steps personally and you're living under the pressure and, and the weight and even some of the stress of bad news. Others of you, this summer has been not a, not a great summer. It's actually been a summer where you've received a diagnosis that, that spelled out some bad news. Stuff that you were praying against, stuff that you didn't want to hear, stuff that you never thought you'd sit on the other side of, bad news. I think our world in, in general is living with an abundance of bad news right now. I'm not just talking about bad news reporting. I'm just talking about bad news in general, things that are really heavy. I mean, you go to the grocery store, you think about the, the amount of situations that are represented in the world. You look at the magazines and the checkout out. It's not exactly good news all the time. And I think for us, when we live constantly under the weight of bad news, there starts to set in this mentality that the future is already kind of set in stone. We even sense this maybe at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis that we were living through. It's like, okay, maybe some people are like, this is going to be a week. Some people are like, this is going to be decades. And I was definitely not a decades person because that sounds absolutely miserable to me. Maybe it does to you too. Like, I think about that, but some people, you just embrace that. It's like, all right, well, that's the bad news. We're just going to live on. And that's kind of what the future is going to look like. Oh, well. But there's something about hearing good news that shapes us. There's something about good news that changes our perspective. I, I remember uh, like right in the middle of March, we, I, I have Facebook, regrettably, but I'm on Facebook way more than I should be. And one of the things that I found out was actually incredibly energizing was seeing people post about good news. Like you maybe have seen this this last week. Someone gets married and you see the picture of them kind of uniting their lives together. That's good news. Like that makes me happy. That just makes me smile. And then you think about someone getting a new puppy, which for my wife, who's a puppy fanatic, that's a big deal. So I saw all the new puppies. Maybe you got a new puppy over the last six months. I already know that because I already saw them all on Facebook. Uh, you see like the, the new puppies and it's like, well, that's pretty good news. That's really exciting. Or some of you moved during the course of time. That's great news. Like that's an exciting season, hopefully that you're walking into. Uh, others of you had really, really good news about your health. They're like, yeah, I'm crushing it. I'd I just did CrossFit seven days a week, and it's paying off. Like, finally, I've got some good news on the other side of, 
of these health concerns. But there is something specific about good news that, that I think we often overlook. And I want to take you to a story that we often overlook. I mean, I want to take you to a story that I have never preached about. There's a good chance you, this is not in your life verse. There's a really good chance that maybe you don't even remember this story or maybe you've never read it before. I want to take you to it because there's something we can learn today about how to fight battles. And all of us are living in those. All of us are living in the pressure of good news. And some of us have some of those crises on our hearts right now. And as we've looked at these battle stories from Gideon to, to Joshua and, the, and the, the tribes of Jericho and how God overcame, this story is really, really bizarre compared to this. Okay, so I want you to turn specifically to 2 Kings, starting in verse or chapter 6. If you've got a physical Bible where you can pull it up on your app, if you're online, you have the freedom to Google that. So Google 2 Kings chapter 6. Here's kind of the scenario that the writer paints for us. Now, Samaria was this town that God's people were living in, and they were trying to figure out how do we get out of this really sticky situation. They were living with some bad news, and we get a picture into that in verse 24. So here's what the text says. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army, marched up, and laid siege to Samaria. Laid siege is not necessarily like a violent, like aggressive, like we're going to go in and plow through the city. Laid siege in this time, in this cultural context, typically was we're going to take our entire military, we're going to surround the city, and we're just going to wait them out. Eventually, they're going to get hungry. Eventually, they're going to get angry. Eventually, they're going to get hangry. And eventually, they're going to either turn on each other and try to make something happen, or they're going to try to escape, and we'll kill them, or we'll just wait them out till. They experienced famine, they can't get any food, and they just starve to death. That was kind of what was happening in Samaria. The, the military had figured this out. Verse 25, well, look what happens. There was a great famine in the city. Now, this siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Here's what that means to you right now in, in modern times. Absolutely nothing, Okay. <laughs> That means absolutely nothing to me. I've never even thought about killing a donkey. I've never thought about eating its head either. That's super weird. I don't even know what a seed pod is, okay? So you take me all the way back to ancient Samaria. Basically, what the writer of Kings is trying to say is things were really, really, really bad. Bad news. Like maybe in that cultural context, you would eat a donkey if you were desperate. You definitely don't eat his head. That's weird. Seed pods, one of the translations in Scripture, um, I'm not sure exactly which one it is, but one of the translations talks about this, the seed pods, the nickname for it in Samaria was dove's poop. <laughs> like, that's how good it tasted. They were like, yeah, this kind of tastes like bird poop. This is amazing. I can't wait to eat this at home. Like, that was the situation. Everything was so desperate. These things, the prices were marked up like crazy, aka toilet paper in March. Okay? It's just like, what? Why? How? I didn't know Amazon even carried this stuff. Like, wow, this is incredible. And you're way overpaying for things that you would never eat in a normal scenario. That's the picture that the writer's trying to communicate in Samaria. In fact, if you keep reading the rest of this chapter, things get even worse than that. They, we're not talking about animals and seed pods here. They begin killing their own family members and deciding, am I going to have this for, like, trying to figure out what, if I've got no future, I start to take really, really desperate measures. I start to do things that are really, really wrong and sinful and broken and messed up. They're just, it's a whole city in this picture with no future, with no promise, with no destiny, with no vision for what is the next year even going to feel like or look like. 
enter into this really, really bizarre story four incredibly bizarre and unlikely characters. Four people you and I would never pick, four people you and I would probably run away from if we saw them in ancient times, four people that you never would have thought would have been the key to winning this incredible battle, Samaria versus Aram. As you keep reading in chapter 7, skip over with me to verse 3. Here's what the writer says. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Leprosy, this incredibly degenerative skin disease, it smelled, you were cast out, you had your own little neighborhood because none of you belonged anymore because of this physical illness that you carried. Most of it was pretty fatal. I mean, because they didn't know how to treat it, this was like basically the end, the beginning of the end for you if you get diagnosed with leprosy. These people were living outside of the city. Well, look what happens. They say to each other, why stay here until we die? (laughs) They're like, we're already going to die. Like, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, we will die. Like, we don't even get first rights to our food. Our family's not going to want us around. So we're going to eventually die because there's nothing left. But if we stay here in this little community, we're going to die. Like, we cannot treat this. We're basically just sitting around waiting for the end to come. So let's go over, I love the boldness, let's go over to the camp of the Aramaeans and surrender. If they spare us, we'll probably live. They're going to have to feed us maybe, maybe they'll give us some bread, some water, some real basics and keep us going. And if they kill us, well, then we die. <laughs> we already know that, that's already going to happen. The end has been written. So to, to them, it's almost like a fatalistic thing. It's not necessarily spiritual courage. It's just like, we're going to die anyway. We should at least try something. We were desperate. There was no, no good news for them. So look what they do. At dusk, they got up, went to the camp of the Aramaeans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. No one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramaeans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they look over. They say to one another, kind of in the middle of the siege, hey, uh, they must have hired somebody. The king of Israel has hired the Hittite Egyptian kings to attack us. Both of those forces were bigger and badder than Aram, and they were going to get destroyed if they st- stuck around to see what the future held for them. So they got up. They fled in the dusk, abandoned tents, horses, donkeys, maybe their heads. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Can you imagine being these four lepers finding this out? Like you are privy to this information, and the rest of your city just a stone's throw away is basically turning in on itself, perishing, because they don't know that the battle's over. They don't understand that there's nobody outside the city anymore. All there are are tents and some leftovers. And look at the response then of verse 9. See, for me, uh, before we read that, I put myself into the story and I think about, I would be really, really excited about this. Like, I'd be really, really excited. So in verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and basically had a party for like a consistent amount of time. Scripture doesn't necessarily mark it out. Um, uh, you don't bar hop. You, you progressive dinner, okay? So I'm just going to assume, right? I'm just making an assumption there. Uh, let's just say in this, in this scenario, basically, this is a progressive dinner. They're like, we're going to go from tent to tent. There's nobody here. This is old country buffet on steroids. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to clean it up. I just get to eat, drink, and collect the, the, the spoils, basically. So these four guys, they go from tent to tent. Then they take all the silver, all the gold, all the extra clothes. They go off and hide them, not knowing when they're going to ever see it again. They return. They go to another tent, take some things from it, and then hide them also. Like This is literally, for these four guys, probably the best day of their lives. 
Like the best news they've ever gotten, the camp is empty and you got full reign of it. Now, behind them in Samaria is a group of people who had absolutely no future, who, who recognized that famine was going to take them. They're eating donkey heads and seed pods. These four lepers kind of a safe. Here's what I think, and the scripture kind of points to this. I think Samaria would have been content to die. I, I thought they, in my kind of modern terms, I think they would look at the scenario and say, I guess this is the new normal. I guess this is kind of what the future looks like. I guess this is what's going to happen to my family. I guess I'm never going to see these people again. I'm never going to see my crops outside the wall again. Like, it's over. Uh, the, the future is kind of set in stone, and we've got the bad news, and now we're living with that. That would have been the end of the story if the lepers didn't do what they do in verse 9. Because in verse 9, here's what the writer says. He says, then these lepers, they look to each other, and this is so selfless, I'm not sure this would be my response, but this is what they say. What we're doing is not right. Baked into that word in Hebrews, essentially, this is immoral. This is wrong. Like, we should not do this. This is ethically wrong for us to keep this to ourselves. They say, this is a day of good news. Like, this is good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait till daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. They have such good news, they could not keep it to themselves. It was trapped inside of them, and they knew, I've got to get this out somehow. I've got to let my family know. Now, maybe I can't personally go there because I've got leprosy. I'm going to shout it. I'm going to tell somebody. I'm going to communicate to somebody in the palace Hey, we are free. There's good news. You can, we can get out of the scenario. Like, like, put the knife down. Like, we are okay. We're going to make it. There's a future here. And I think it's so fascinating. As I look at my own life, I'm in this story. You're in this story. That if you've experienced good news, there is a sense, if it's deeply transformed you, that you cannot just be content to keep it in your huddle. You've got to let other people know. And I think this, this story would be completely different if these four lepers said, we got all the spoils, we hit them, let's just hightail it out of here and we'll come back at some other point and, and pick up our stuff. We'll let Samaria just kind of perish. We don't really care. They kicked us out anyway. They're already our enemies. We'll let them go. But they don't. They go back and they say, what we're doing is not right. This is the day of good news. This, people need to hear this. People need to know this. And I think that's what's really interesting to me about good news. See, when I received good news 10 years ago, when I, when I embraced personally the good news of Jesus in my own life, it changed my future. And I think for these four lepers, and you could obviously trace this to Jesus's 12 disciples, he gathers together and says, you are, are responsible. You have a burden to carry this good news because here's what I know Jesus believes. Here's what the scriptures affirm over and over and over again. Good news shapes the future. It changes things. It, it changes marriages. It reorients purpose and calling in people's lives. It changes how you and I show up to work on a Monday. It changes why we show up to work on a Monday. It changes how we view our budgets. It changes how we parent difficult children. It changes how we view the poor and the overlooked and the marginalized and the neglected, even in our neighborhoods. It changes how we interact 
with the people who are different than us and don't agree with us and don't look like us. The good news of Jesus Christ shapes the future, changes why we do what we do. Taking us back to the story of Hairu Onoda, this Japanese soldier. About 32 years later, a traveling photographer, uh, last name is Suzuki. Suzuki's traveling through this area, and, and he finds that there's kind of remnants of this Japanese military camp, and he's really intrigued. I mean, I love history. I love when I stumble across ruins. Lindsay and I went to Europe last year. One of my favorite things was like, oh man, that looks so old. Let's go walk around in it. Like that was kind of my, my vibe. Some of you are like that too. Like just love those kind of things. This Suzuki finds this, this camp and eventually discovers that there's someone living there. He tracks down Hairu, who's still kind of hiding in the bushes of Labong, Philippines and trying to take out people who are apparently his enemies and trying to withstand this war as he thinks it's gone on for another 30 plus years. Suzuki has this kind of conversation with Hairu and says, hey, why are you still fighting? Don't you know? Like, haven't you heard? The the war's been over for like 30 years. And Hairu, being a really loyal Japanese soldier, is like, nope, I already already saw the pamphlets. That's not real. I'm going to keep fighting. Eventually, the, Suzuki goes back to Japan and says, you guys got to check this out. There's actually a Japanese soldier still fighting in the, in the jungles of the Philippines, but he doesn't know. Like the, I had to bring him some good news. So finally, they send Japanese officials over, uh, kind of officially releasing him from his post because he would not leave. He didn't believe the war was actually over. Now, that's a crazy story. And on some level, no matter what side you fall on, you could, you could admire the fact that Onoda stayed and stuck it out and was incredibly loyal. But think about what Onoda lost over 30 years without the good news that the war was over. As you start to think, you've got a family. If you left them 30 years later, you missed funerals, you missed weddings, you missed birthdays. You miss significant milestones in the life of your family. You miss the ability to sit down and have your favorite meal. You miss holidays. You miss 30 years of life. That's a big chunk of time. And because Onoda had not heard the good news and embraced it, he lost all of that. That good, the bad news essentially had shaped his future. Friends, what you and I know is true is that there are people all around us every single day, where you work, where you go to school, where you get groceries, where you fill up on gas, that are desperate for good news, that live with the weight and the pressure of bad news and a lack of hope, believing that the next 10 years are going to look exactly like the last 10. If you follow Jesus, we don't believe that. If your life has been transformed as a disciple of Jesus Christ like mine has, you don't believe that. You believe good news shapes the future. You believe good news changes destinies. In fact, as you look over the course, when when COVID-19 kind of first hit on U.S. soil and we were trying to figure out what is all of this, as you looked at March and April, the number of people that began praying before, that had never prayed before, was incredible. I mean, Pew Research did some data mining a few months after most of the quarantines had lifted in specific states and found that 25% of non-religious people in the U.S. began praying during the months of March, April, and May. Was that desperation? Yeah, probably. 
But was that also a real attempt to try to connect with something supernatural and divine that they realized, wow, this is a lot of bad news. I've got no hope here. My, my family's in jeopardy. Maybe my job's in jeopardy. Maybe my eternal destiny. I'm not really sure even where that lands. And they begin praying 25% of people who'd say, I don't go to church. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't even know if God's real. Begin praying. And I think that's a really interesting number. I think it's something that as Jesus followers, we should be curious about. Why is that? At the end of the day, as I look at this kind of story, I think it's because people are desperate for good news. And you and I have it. You, you and I have access to it in a way that's life-changing. There are people, again, all around you that are carrying the weight of bad news. And frankly, as we're talking about this building and stepping out in faith, and today is kind of one of those days in, in the history of our church, I think about how many people will never walk through the doors of a church in our community unless we do something about it. Not waiting and saying, John, there's 27 other churches. Let them do their thing. There are people who will never enter the door of any of those churches unless you and I say, we're going to step out and do something that maybe doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Maybe for you, the faith step you're taking today doesn't make a lot of financial sense either. And you're stepping out and saying, I believe not only does good news shape my future, everybody I encounter in this community could have access to that same future-shaping good news, and it's worth it to me. I think about that, and I think about uh, one of my very favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Some of you have that memorized, probably. If the old is gone, the new has come. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That old is, is passed away, the new has come. That's one of my very favorite verses verses, but what we so often miss is what Paul writes right after. And I want us to actually read this out loud together. This verse is stuck in my head uh, the last couple weekends. Let's read this out together. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know who God's plan A is for this world to experience good news? Turn around. <laughs> it's us. It's always been us. And God, for whatever reason, in his grace and in his sovereignty, has said, I'm going to equip the church to be the carrier of good news and reconciliation to this world because the world doesn't have it. And the world will never have it. It's never going to offer the peace and the hope and the mercy and the grace that, that God offers. And so I think about this, and I uh, asked to, you can tell how handy I am, I asked to borrow a toolbox. <laughs> I asked to borrow a fancy toolbox, okay? I have one. I just don't know where it is. Um, I asked for this toolbox, and uh, I think about this, and I think about something like this. Now, as we're talking about kind of the step of faith as a church, uh, let me be super, super clear. If we move forward with this, basically this week, if we say this is a yes from God, we're going for it, there's going to be a lot of you that need to bring your toolbox, like your physical toolbox. We need you to bring it, Okay. Uh, but also as you think about this symbolically as well, if we believe that this is a step towards God building his future and towards building a future in our community that's shaped by good news, it's going to take a better tool than the one we're in right now. It just does. Again, there are people who will never step foot in this gym that maybe Sunday morning when they're at family fair, they start to see, oh, they look different. <laughs> You all look beautiful, but you're just different beautiful, okay? I'm different beautiful. At least that's what my mom told me. So at, at, 
Man, I'm throwing her under the bus a lot lately. I need to stop preaching. The, um, but that's just the reality. I mean, honestly, there, there's better tools out there. And, and if this building ends up being the better tool, then glory to God for it. Because we'll know we didn't, we didn't even really do anything except step out in obedience. He brought it. He gave us the resources. And if we feel like it's the right thing, we're going to commit to that and, and sacrifice and step out. Last thing I want to share and then we're going we're gonna to sing, we're going to worship, and we're going to physically respond. If you came ready to give, we're going to walk through what does that look like in a few minutes. Um, 9.48 today, like 12 minutes before the service started, I get a call on my phone. A lot of people, you're going to know this name, uh, a call from Chad McCollum. So Chad McCollum, yeah, so Chad McCollum founded and planted this church about 14-ish years ago. He and I talk on and off um, throughout just the year, and so... Um, we haven't talked in a while. And he said, hey, I've been watching your stuff from afar. I've been watching you guys. He said, I want to tell you two things. Number one, Julie and I are sending a check today. We believe in this next step as a church, which is huge. And uh, I was in a guy's bathroom down on the other side of the corner, and I got like goosebumps. I kind of have goosebumps right now. I was like, wow. He said, the second thing you need to know it was some Christmas Eve service. He's like, I don't remember even where we were in meeting, if it was a community center or what. We were at that community center, and I sent Julie and the, and the kids home, and I, and I just pulled into the family fair parking lot to pick up some stuff, and I just sat there, and I said, God, if you would ever give us a space in this community, it'd be really cool if it was in this plaza. Take that for whatever it's worth, okay? If you're a believing person, uh, you're seeing some of the dots connect. And maybe you're not. And maybe you're like, so what? Wherever you're at on that journey, here's what I want to say. God has kept saying yes and opening a door. I don't want to be the one to say no. I just want to keep saying yes. And so what I want to do is pray for us. And then I want to just set up what, what does response look like? What does our step of obedience look like in incredibly practical ways? But I don't want to miss what God is doing in the moment either. Because some of you, this is the step you need to take. You need to branch out and say, all right, I've got the good news. I've raided the camp, right? My life has changed. But there are people who don't know that is possible yet. And I'm going to step out for them. And there's other of you, others of you, maybe you're watching online right now. Maybe you're in the room. You haven't personally embraced the good news for yourself. You haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. I want to pray for wherever you're at on that journey and then we're going to respond really, really, really practically. So let's pray. Jesus, as we stand in this moment, I think about the 14 years of prayers and obedience steps that have led up to right now. As you're looking down from heaven, God, you see families who have given and sacrificed, who have poured blood, sweat, and tears in the last 14, 15 years, and at the same time sit here and you believe that the next 15 could be even better. So God, I pray that you give us the faith and boldness that's required to follow you, to step out even when it hurts, to make a bold move in the face of a season of our lives that makes absolutely no logical sense. And God, I pray for the person who's sitting there. Maybe they're sitting at home right now just wrestling with, man, what is my next step? What am I supposed to do with this? I don't, I don't even claim to be a Christian. I've got a lot of questions. 
God, I pray that even in these moments, as you've spoken through your words, you're speaking through our obedience, as you've spoken through songs and prayers and maybe even things that you're orchestrating in their lives today, I pray that, uh, again, whether they're here or joining us online, that you would communicate how much you love them and are for them, and that that would be the trigger point for them to fully embrace your good news. So wherever we're at, God, we lay down our own dependence, our own sin, our own brokenness, our own warped ways of thinking, and we just say, God, would you fill us? Would you help us to fight our battles the way you fight? And with the faith of a weak farmer like Gideon, we just stand before you and we bring what we have and say, God, would you multiply this? Would you do more with this and what we could do with it ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's what I want to do as we respond. A um, couple quick things. Number one, if you came ready to, to kind of hand in your commitment card, it feels like school. We're in a school. How fitting. If you came ready to hand in your commitment card, which is due today. No, it's weird. Came in and hand that commitment card. Uh, I know so many of you, even up to this point, have prayed over that. For some of you, have stretched out and you're like, can we do this? And uh, Lindsay and I have ours, along with our first fruits offering. And just as a symbol, we want to go first. Because this is not a matter of us talking about it and then watching you guys do it. We're in this together. And the only way that we'll actually see this come to pass is by doing it together. And so I'm just going to throw this in here. And I'm going to, yeah, thanks. And I'm going to ask that you would, uh, if you're engaging online, you can go to centergr.com slash giving and give, or you can go to centergr.com slash Gideon and make a digital pledge. Both of those things are on the website. If you're in the room, I'm going to encourage you, if you came ready with that commitment card, to just during this next song to walk up. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Maybe you want to send a representative, the most faith-filled person. You push them ahead. You're like, you go up there. I don't know. I'm still figuring all this out. But some of you, I think it'd be a really powerful moment as a family or as spouses, as a couple to say, we're going to go up together. We're in this together because it will take all of us. So that's what I want to encourage you to do, to bring that up, whether you have the first fruits offering in some form or you want to bring up the commitment card as well or just one or the other to do that. And as we respond in this moment, again, it goes back to the question, and I, I hope that you don't feel this. This is not a me trying to twist your arm, make you do something. This is me saying, what is God asking you to do? And will you step out in boldness and say, all right, God, I'm going to do it. Lump in my throat. We're going for it. And then we'll see what God does. We'll update you tomorrow. We'll figure out where all that lands. If you gave online already, I know some of you have done that. Um, you'll, we'll get that tomorrow, that information in the morning, and then we'll process that and keep you updated. But what I want you to do, again, is just sit with that question. Maybe you're ready, and you're like, John, would you shut up? I just want to go put that thing in the toolbox. So... Again, we're going to sing this song. We're going to worship. I invite you to stand right now just as we engage this moment and then to respond however you feel like you need to respond. And then uh, we'll talk about next steps after today. So let's sing.